Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sanduck. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee, along with Daniel Horan and Ellen Cope. Dan is a Franciscan friar and director of the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Alan holds the chair in Faith and Life at Baldwin Wallace University, where he is a professor of religion, and he is a member of the board of directors of the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. Please note that we are recording this webinar. It will be available on YouTube and as a podcast soon after the live event. You may post questions in the chat at any time today. Please send your questions to Ellen Kolb. And now it is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Deborah Kehoe. Deborah is a retired English professor living in Oxford, Mississippi. She has a PhD in English with a concentration in 20th century literature from the University of Mississippi. She is a former member of the Board of Directors of the International Thomas Merton Society and is currently co-editor of the Merton Annual. Here now is Dr. Deborah Kehoe speaking on Thomas Merton and Southern writing. Deborah. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you for having me and thank you all for being here. In keeping with my Southern theme, I'd like to begin with the following prayer. Let us give thanks to God for Sister Thea Bowman, whose prophetic witness continues to inspire people to live lives of faith and hope. In a society disfigured by the sin of white supremacy, she was a consoling and challenging voice of truth and wisdom. May Sister Thea, servant of God, pray for us that we may learn from her example of holiness and have the courage to imitate her life of loving and humble service. Amen. In this presentation, I explore Thomas Merton's responses to certain authors of the South, for whom in his dual vocation as monk and writer, he expresses an affinity that goes beyond literary kinship alone. I also want to bring into the discussion some contemporary authors, not known to Merton, but whose writing to my ear echoes the concerns and cares of his eternal mind and heart suggesting a relationship transcending time, yet in a variety of ways rooted in place. As an English major in the Deep South in the 1970s, I learned a traditional version of Southern Lit. But over the years, my definition of that construct has been expanded to include not only works about or by someone in that region of the United States labeled the South, but also works about or by persons in geographical settings within and beyond North American boundaries. Scholars of post-colonialism see Southern identity within the wider space of the Americas, encompassing the Southern Hemisphere as well as the Southern United States and beyond the Americas, those areas of the world known as the Global South, united by a common experience of poverty, historical marginalization, and a robust body of literature of resistance and solidarity. 
I bring this up only to say that one can view Thomas Merton in relation to Southern writing through a number of lenses. And I'm going to look through a couple of them. For the most part, I focus on Merton and selected canonical Southern writers of the United States, representatives of the Southern Renaissance and its legacy. I begin with William Faulkner. Born in 1897, died in 1962. He lived most of his life here in Oxford, Mississippi, in Lafayette County, an area he famously fictionalized as the town of Jefferson in the county of Yaknapatawpha. More than a famous regional writer, Faulkner holds a secure place in the pantheon of literary artists. He, he remains an intriguing figure to many stripes of readers around the world. He certainly commanded the attention of Thomas Merton. While William Faulkner found almost nothing to credit in organized religion, his works exhibit what Faulkner scholars have called a religious imagination, which along with what Merton terms classical values, attracted Merton to Faulkner's writing. According to Merton, a writer with classical values can be known by certain traits such as a belief in cosmic order, an affirmation of absolute truth, and an ability to maximize the creative potential of the language in which he or she writes. These qualities are evident in the writing of William Faulkner. Many may recall his Cold War era Nobel Prize acceptance speech in which, in what are today immortal phrases, Faulkner invokes love, pity, pride, compassion, and sacrifice, the old verities, he called them, on which writers must remain focused if their work is not to be, quote, ephemeral and doomed, end quote. He famously claims the poet's duty is to write about these things. As for making the most out of the language, anyone who has invested time in Faulkner's works knows of his uncanny ability to exploit the versatility of English syntax in order to immerse the reader in a stream of often troubled consciousness and to draw from a repository of idiosyncratic nouns and modifiers to the extent that the reader understands that one enters Faulkner's imaginary world on his terms. Merton's attraction to Faulkner centers primarily on Faulkner's place within the nexus of the literary and the spiritual, what Merton calls his, quote, theological import, his sapiential vision, end quote. Elements of his fiction that Merton sees as, quote, symbolic material which can be used to illustrate the ascent of the spiritual life. One of the best sources of this material, according to Merton, is Faulkner's novella, The Bear. Merton zeroes in on the character of Ike McCaslin, who was being inducted into manhood on a bear hunting expedition in search of the massive bear, Old Ben. Merton notes the mythic stature of Old Ben emanating the mystery of the divine presence within the wilderness and traces the steps by which Ike opens himself to a mystical encounter with that presence. At several points, Ike abandons the accoutrements of the hunter, his gun, watch, and compass, before making contact with the bear, deliberate relinquishings, to use a Faulknerian term, 
that Merton interprets as a self-emptying Kierkegaardian leap of faith into a deeper state of spiritual receptivity. Merton also sees other of Faulkner's characters as instinctively adhering to the old verities and values in their lives. For example, he describes the African-American character named Dilsey as a type of person with a biblical sense of time, time which goes with the fullness of things. He says, more loving, more in touch with the natural rhythm, the movement and growth of life. Merton points to the passage in which the character named Caddy teases Dilsey by asking her how she will know her name is written in the book of the saved in heaven if she cannot read it, to which Dilsey replies, quote, won't have to. All I got to do is say I is here, end quote. Merton pronounces this passage, quote, the perfect statement of Christian identity, identity as response. The mention of Dilsey prompts some words about Faulkner's treatment of race relations in his fiction and in his life. Notes that should be expected in a discussion of a writer from Faulkner's home state and mine, or as Nina Simone puts it, everybody knows about Mississippi. As far as I'm familiar, Thomas Merton did not offer many direct comments on Faulkner and race other than to remark parenthetically in the essay, Religion and Race in the United States, that Faulkner saw racial strife as rooted in the guilt for the sin of slavery. Additionally, there's a journal entry in which Merton notes, quote, the embarrassing elements of Faulkner's work, such as, quote, the comic depictions of Negroes. A number of scholars have investigated the subject of Faulkner and race more extensively. A recent example, The Saddest Words, Faulkner's Civil War by Michael Gora, explores lapses and disappointing stances in Faulkner's life as writer and citizen regarding his handling of Black characters and his incrementalist approach to the civil rights movement. Ultimately, Gora's study is sympathetic. He observes that Faulkner knew that had he been alive during the Civil War, he would have been a member of the Confederacy. But Faulkner also knew that the principle on which the civil war was waged was evil. Gora concludes, quote, his work lies in the space between, and at times the contradiction must have been unbearable, end quote. In light of Gora's examination, I recall Faulkner's impassioned statement to the press in response to the murder of Emmett Till. Quote, if we have reached that point in our desperate culture, when we must murder children, we don't deserve to survive and probably won't, End quote. Such words suggest that the horrifying event has cracked the optimism of Faulkner's Nobel Prize address of five years earlier, but they might also be taken as an implicit reminder to the poets of the world to be the inexhaustible voice of the old verities. Faulkner was not alive on September 15, 1963, when a bomb went off in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham and murdered more children. But Thomas Merton was, and he saw the photograph in Look Magazine of one of the four young girls killed in the explosion, a picture that crystallized for Merton the madness of her death and like Yeats's Ireland, 
hurt him into poetry. This is when I'm going to share the screen. The picture crystallized for Merton, the madness of her death, and like Yeats's Ireland, hurt him into poetry. The poem, picture of a black child with a white doll, addressed to 11-year-old Carol Denise McNair, penetrates the heart of darkness by focusing on the face of innocence. The opening stanzas go like this. Your dark eyes will never need to understand our sadness to see you hold that plastic glass-eyed merchandise as if our empty-headed race needed to know love. The poem moves from anger to affirmation of the redemptive love of God. For as Merton expresses in a letter he sent along with the poem to Denise's father, quote, anger is not enough and never will be. Merton is also temperamentally in sync with Faulkner's defensive reaction to the encroachment of industrialization and technological advances upon a historically agrarian South. In his notes on Faulkner's novel, The Wild Palms, Merton focuses on the contrast between the two narratives that alternate throughout the novel. The first, The Old Man, is rich with allusions to Genesis and Isaiah and images of floods, fecundity, birth, and harmony amid chaos. It projects, in Merton's words, an eschatological vision. The second story, The Wild Palms, depicting the effects of an abortion, exposes the deadly consequences of a worldview that Merton calls, quote, the faith of modern man a misplaced belief in the primacy of one's earthly desires and in purely technological solutions to any obstacles to their fulfillment. In conclusion, Merton applauds Faulkner's illustration of the quote, shallowness and stupidity, end quote, of such a lifestyle. Next in line is Flannery O'Connor, native and lifelong resident of Georgia lived from 1925 to 1964, her life cut short by lupus. With a relatively small body of work, O'Connor became famous for writing mostly short stories featuring mostly rural Southern characters, many of whom are disfigured or underdeveloped in various ways. Many of them are wrestling with distorted perceptions of God, Christianity, and people of other races or cultures. The arc of her stories often rises to a violent conflict and enigmatic resolution, a trajectory that O'Connor calls, quote, an action in which the devil unwittingly becomes an instrument of grace, end quote. For example, one of her most anthologized stories, A Good Man is Hard to Find, features a vapid grandmother who through her selfish conniving ultimately causes her family to be murdered on the side of the road 
by an escaped convict who calls himself the misfit. The story climaxes with the grandmother's coming face to face with her assassin, to whom she suddenly inexplicably reaches out and says, quote, why you're one of my babies, one of my own children, end quote. The misfit recoils and shoots her three times in the chest, then comments to his accomplice, quote, she would have been a good woman if it had been someone there to shoot her every minute of her life, end quote. O'Connor, who like Merton was a talented cartoonist in her younger years, has extraordinary powers of concrete description and an arresting sense of humor. She remains for many readers a magnetic but confounding writer. In her collection of occasional prose, Mystery and Manners, O'Connor comments on the challenges of being a writer who strives to write from what in Mertonian terms would be called her true self. She tells of editors and critics who question her preoccupation with the grotesque or readers who complain that her stories do not provide entertaining escape from life's drudgery. Perhaps the most illuminating comments on the subject of the writer's struggle to be true to her calling are found in her discussion of what it means to be a Christian Southern writer. Quote, O'Connor, I have heard it said that belief in Christian dogma is a hindrance to the writer, but I myself have found nothing further from the truth. Actually, it frees the storyteller. Mainly, it guarantees a respect for mystery. These words reveal a connection between O'Connor and Thomas Merton, who in his essay, Flannery O'Connor, A Prose Elegy, respectfully notes, quote, the key word to her stories is respect. Furthermore, O'Connor's phrase, respect for mystery, echoes the language of Merton's reflections on his own values, such as in the following journal entry, quoting Merton, respect for mystery, veneration, the sacredness of mystery, these are essential virtues. In another passage from Mystery and Manners, O'Connor reacts to the frequent criticism that her work is not realistic or representative. She says, such demands require that writers form a consciousness in the light of statistics, which is to establish the relative is absolute. For many, this may be a convenience, but it cannot even be possible for the writer who is Catholic. On being repeatedly questioned by critics as to why she and other Southern writers write so often about freaks, O'Connor offers some memorable responses, including this regional favorite, because we can still recognize them, quote. In this apparently sarcastic comeback, she is invoking an inescapable fact of life in the Bible Belt where even those people who are running away from a church upbringing were probably immersed in scripture and religious training in their formative years to the point where they have internalized a belief in the maiming effects of sin in this imperfect world where we exist as exiles. O'Connor is not claiming a Christian superiority on the part of Southerners who, as she observes, are more likely to be Christ haunted than Christ centered but she is claiming that writers of the South who are guided by a Christian vision of wholeness are likely to be especially aware of the flawed humanity of the world. Quoting O'Connor, my own feeling is that writers who see by the light of their Christian faith will have the sharpest eyes for the grotesque. Adding to her thoughts on this subject of her freakish, 
excuse me, freakish characters, she explains, it is very difficult to get across to the modern reader that you take these people seriously, that their concerns are your own and in your judgment central to human life. It is hard enough for this reader to suspend disbelief and accept an anagogical level of action at all, harder still to accept its action in an obviously grotesque character. Thomas Merton, not the typical modern reader, certainly does understand that anagogical level of O'Connor's fiction, understands that her characters, as bizarre as they may be, are ascending in their spiritual development, often helped along by a shocking encounter with a fellow broken human being. In one of his journal entries, Merton writes that O'Connor's, quote, crazy religious characters are to be taken seriously, end quote, for they are looking into, quote, the dark and terrible face of God, and their religion is inadequate. In a letter to Robert Giroux, O'Connor's longtime editor, Merton singles out O'Connor's story, Judgment Day, as, quote, the best thing she ever wrote. Judgment Day is the last story O'Connor published, but it is also a reworking of the first story she published called The Geranium. Both stories deal with an old man from the South living in New York City, but longing for home. Both fondly recall a relationship with a black man down South, although one in which the white man takes for granted his superior status. Because of their Jim Crow presumptions, both get into trouble in the North. In Judgment Day, the old man dies after being physically attacked by his much annoyed black neighbor, whom he insists on calling preacher. The story closes with an abrupt epilogue in which the narrator reports that the old man's daughter, having repented her earlier refusal to honor her father's wishes to be buried in the South, had his remains reinterred there, and as a result has unburdened her conscience. This ending represents a softening of O'Connor's usual treatment of her characters, especially the hard-headed ones. Merton sums up the story this way. It is a great metaphysical poem of the South. O'Connor was at last getting into the depths of compassion, which probably killed her. Leave it to Thomas Merton to lay down such a cryptic nutshell of evaluation. My quick interpretation is as follows. Metaphysical means the story cannot be grasped by the analytical mind alone. Poem of the South recalls for me the words of the famous scholar Hugh Holman that the South is, quote, a region with a riddle at its heart that can be solved only by a poet's reconciling vision. The following words of O'Connor's suggest that she holds similar views, quoting O'Connor. The Southern writer is forced from all sides to make her gaze extend beyond the surface, beyond mere problems, until it touches that realm which is, which is the concern of prophets and poets. Finally, getting into compassion, which probably killed her, requires more digging than I can do here. But the eerie fact that four years after he wrote this, Merton himself would die only weeks after recording his own experience of getting deeper into compassion lends an attractive coincidental quality to these words of one writer about another writer between whom there are other observable similarities, 
such as Robert Giroux, sums up as follows. A highly developed sense of comedy, deep faith, great intelligence. They both died at the height of their powers. And might we add, and after having arrived at a new depth of compassion. Moving on now, I turn to Merton and writers of another South. The 2000 book, Look Away, 2004 book, Look Away, the U.S. South and New World Studies, offers an updated perspective on Southern identity in writing. The authors of Look Away submit that a more relevant approach today to distinguishing Southernness and Southern writing is to focus on the link between the U.S. South and Latin America. Given their shared history of slavery and a plantation economy and all the baggage of human rights violations that comes with colonialism. This proposition leads me to include in this survey of Merton and Southern writers, certain poets of Latin America with whom Merton identifies strongly and to bring into the picture some poets whom he never met, but whom I dare to imagine that he would like. In a 1965 letter to Stefan Bachu, Merton writes, quote, I feel myself clearly much more in sympathy with the Latin American poets today than with those of North America, end quote. He describes Latin American poets as alive, having something honest to say, sincerely concerned with life and humanity. And when they are bitter, their bitterness has maturity, end quote. Speaking of the North American poets, Merton writes, some have an unquestionable maturity and excellence, but few really say anything. Among those South American poets with whom Merton entered into a literary and spiritual collaboration was a group of Nicaraguans whom scholar Malgajor Tapax notes, Merton admired especially for their contemplative way of life and their reverence for the indigenous inhabitants. Probably most familiar to Merton, uh, Merton readers is Ernesto Cardinal, who had been for a short time a novice at Gethsemane before poor health forced him to return to Central America, where he founded in Nicaragua a commune for contemplatives and artists to which Merton was invited. It was destroyed by the Somoza dictatorship that was eventually overthrown by the Sandinista revolution in which Cardinal was active. His cousin, Pablo Antonio Cuadra, was also a close friend of Merton's to whom Merton addresses the poetic essay, a letter to Pablo Antonio Cuadra concerning giants. It is a potent piece of political criticism, an analysis of the wrongs done to Latin America wrought by Western imperialism and colonialism. Yet it is also a statement of hope that Latin America could become the locus of spiritual renewal for the world. A significant source of this hope rests in the indigenous cultures of poor and exploited people of the Southern Hemisphere, whose organic coexistence with their native ecosystems sets them apart from the, quote, cerebral and mechanistic cultures, end quote, of the Northern Hemisphere, who, quote, live by abstractions and more and more isolate themselves from the natural world, end quote. Significantly, Merton indicts the condescension on the part of Christian missionaries to the Southern Hemisphere, whose convictions of exceptionalism prevented them from realizing that, quote, the voice of Christ already spoke in the unfamiliar accents of the Indians of the South, end quote. 
In the essay, one can detect notes of Merton's own masterful work of theopolitical imagination in which he hears the voice of Christ in native populations of the global South and around the world, the epic he was working on at the time of his death, the geography of Logrere. One clear indicator of Merton's sympathy for the Latin American poets is his translations of some of their works. Take, for example, the following excerpts of his translations of poems by Ernesto Cardinal. Selections from Gethsemane, Kentucky. Spring has come with its smell of Nicaragua, smell of earth recently rained on, and smell of heat, of flowers, of disinterred roots, wet leaves. Or is it the smell of love? But this love is not yours. Love of country is the dictator's love. In that earth he lies embalmed, where, while love has taken you away to a strange land. And then three epigrams. Shots were heard, this is one of the three epigrams. Shots were heard last night out by the burial ground. No one knows who killed or was killed. No one knows a thing. In these two imagistic depictions of separate landscapes simultaneously alive in the poet's consciousness and memory with acute sensitivity to the elemental rhythms of the earth, sensory rich details overlap in a mixture of natural beauty and unnatural horror, a phenomenon inescapably familiar to many who are well acquainted with life in the colonized South. In the 1995 production, The Language of Life, a festival of poets, host Bill Moyers interviews Latin American poet Daisy Samora, who in words that might have delighted the heart of Thomas Merton says, quote, in Nicaragua, everyone speaks poetry, end quote. Born in Nicaragua in 1950, Zamora, like Cardinal, was active in the Sandinistan resistance against Somoza. Still an active poet today, hers is a voice in concert with those of the poets with whom Merton passionately interacted in the 1960s, with the exception that hers is a woman's voice, and as such bears witness to a form of subjugation not experienced by her brother poets. Critics describe her as having been, quote, shaped by revolution and gender. Yet they add, quote, her voice is universal and true, sounding notes of sanity in times of madness, end quote. For example, in the poem Lineage, the speaker recounts her frustrated search for full connection with her ancestors, gives a lyrical roll call of names alternating between the patrilineal and the matrilineal, between abundant facts and unanswered questions, in which the refrain, quote, I ask about the women of my house, end quote, takes on a haunting repetitiveness. In a poem sequence called No Man's Land, inscribed, quote, to the poets I love, Zamora writes, quote, we are a minefield of clarity and whoever crosses the barbed wire comes back to life, end quote. No Man's Land is a series of poems each dedicated to a Nicaraguan poet of the Vanguardia movement, those with whom Merton interacted, including Ernesto Cardinal, to whom Zamora dedicates the poem the art of loving, in which she assures him, quote, I understand your renunciation for the love of God because it is true love. You don't hide any poor women under your bed, end quote. 
words that bear out Merton's statement in his message to poets, that poets who best understand violence know that therapeutic love is the only force that changes everything. Zamora, like these other Latin American poets, Thomas Merton hails for their honesty and spiritual vitality, has what scholar Robin D.G. Kelly calls poetic knowledge, the kind of intelligence that enables one to imagine a new society in the midst of a miserable lived experience. In Pecan Phrases, Kelly defines the poetry that emerges from that kind of imagination as, quote, an emancipation of language and old ways of thinking. Perhaps another way, <clears throat> excuse me, of saying a raid on the unspeakable. Recalling Merton's qualified generalizations about North American versus Latin American poets, I, relying only on intuitive speculation, suggest the name of a North American poet of the South who possesses some of that rare maturity he mentions and who clearly has something to say. Another poet whom Merton could never have known, her having been born just two years before his death. I'm referring to Natasha Trethewey, Mississippi-born, child of a Black mother and a white father. Writer and scholar Ralph Eubanks, also a Mississippian, has observed, quote, within the work of every Mississippi writer exists a tension between versions of history, between the truth of a place and the place's idea of itself, end quote. This point is well illustrated by Trethewey's collection, Native Guard, in which the poet records her individual and collective journey into the dark realities of her native region, interweaving details of the topographical with the interior landscape. The poem Pilgrimage, for example, speaks of taking one of those popular tourist visits to Vicksburg, Mississippi, where the speaker spends a night in an antebellum house, all decked out in its lost cause finery, where she has been assigned to Prissy's room, where, quote, in my dream, the ghost of history lies down beside me, rolls over, pins me beneath a heavy arm, end quote. Given the bewildering fact that the state legislature of Mississippi recently wielded its power and privilege to ensure that an accurate account of history not be taught in the public schools, I must share the following poem of Trethewey's in its entirety. It's not long. It's called Southern History. Before the war, they were happy, he said, quoting our textbook. This was senior year history class. The slaves were clothed, fed, and better off under a master's care. I watched the words blur on the page. No one raised a hand, disagreed, not even me. It was late. We still had reconstruction to cover before the test. And luckily, three hours of watching Gone with the Wind, history, the teacher said, of the Old South, a true account of how things were back then. On screen, a slave stood big as life, big mouth, bucked eyes, our textbooks grinning proof, a lie my teacher guarded. Silent, so did I. I salute the graceful restraint with which the poet renders the absurdity of a delusional education system. And I submit that were Merton to know the unflinching eye and sensitive voice of Natasha Trethewey, who has spoken of poetry as, quote, a kind of faith in which she finds solace amid personal and public suffering. And the skill with which she amplifies that voice with the power of silence 
he would include her among the dervishes he caused to dance in the water of life. In 2011, I received an email from Dr. Ann Abadie, Professor Emerita of Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi, as well as my friend and fellow Merton enthusiast. Excuse me. Anne said that she had been looking for a way to, quote, get something about Merton into the Southern Register, end quote, which is the publication of the university's Center for the Study of Southern Culture. And she had found it in Monica Wise's new book of that year, The Environmental Vision of Thomas Merton. Anne asked me to review Monica's book for the Register because she saw in it a facet of Merton that many consider part of the heart of the Southern mythos a deep spiritual ecology. Just as I eagerly accepted Anne Abadie's invitation, I gladly accepted this opportunity to discuss Merton in relation to other great literary voices of the South, intoning what the late Willie Morris describes as, quote, a mysterious euphonious litany. I include Merton in this choir, not because by the simplest criteria he may be called a Southern writer, but more significantly, he belongs in this company because his greatest legacy is his opposition to division, his witness to unity. He is a writer with a thousand accents, a man for all regions. Thank you. Well, Deborah, that was, that was pretty amazing. And uh, an area that I don't know that much about. So even more um, apropos. So I have way more questions than time will permit. But Here. let me start with, with uh, one that I don't know the answer to, and I look forward to it. Um, when were you attracted to Merton? And uh, how, did, how did you come to say, I want to spend some time with this guy, this monk? Thank you for that question, Alan. Um, the answer is 2001. <laughs> um, I had heard of Merton you know, years ago. Uh, I had a friend in graduate school who was from Kentucky and he often talked about Merton and, and uh, you know, I, I had, had heard his name and, and knew something about him. But in 2001, Sister Mary Schoberg, who was part of the pastoral staff at St. John Church here in Oxford, um, invited George and me to go to uh, the, the conference, the ITMS general meeting that summer. And I went and I, I, I knew I was going to go back. I mean, I was absolutely smitten. I was like, I've gone to a lot of conferences and that one was absolutely the best. Uh, and so I, I thought, well, if I'm going to go to these conferences, I really need to, to try to contribute something. Um, and so I just, that became you know, my main occupation is, uh, and, you know, haven't lost any of the enthusiasm. It's, yeah, that's good. And your expertise is really different than mine. So this is, this is fun. Um, I wonder, has Merton affected you differently as a writer and scholar, as opposed to a person of faith and, and somebody who, in a sense, influences you inspirationally speaking? I would, uh, my instinct is to say yes, uh, and, but I think I'm at a loss right now as how to say exactly, you know, but definitely, you know, has influenced. I mean, I am drawn to Merton, you know, as a spiritual leader, but I'm also very drawn to him as a literary figure, and, and you know, that has been my, 
um, you know, the focus of, of my scholarship, my own education, my, my whole academic life. I've, I had a 40 year long career and I did nothing but teach English the entire time. Uh, so yes, I mean, he, he, he has um, enriched my life on, on both of those, in both of those areas. Yeah. I'm gonna switch gears on you a bit. Um, I, I appreciate what you said about Flannery O'Connor. Um, and I was intrigued. You said something about she was able to write from her true self. Uh -huh. And I'm, I'm interested, what does it mean to write from your true self? And you made me wonder, huh, do I ever know when I'm doing it or have I never done it? So what, what does that mean to you? And do you have a sense of when you're writing from your true self as opposed to just Deborah? <laughs> um, I think I probably have a better sense of when I'm writing from my one of my many false selves than, uh, and I guess maybe by implication, I, I, I think with Flannery O'Connor to take the heat off me for a minute, um, she was, you know, constantly being asked all these questions about why do you do this? Why do you do this? You know what? Um, you should be more, you should be more uplifting in your writing. You should be this, this, and this. And she, she had her, her reasons for writing, you know, and it was centered in her, her Catholic identity and um, so I'm, you know, I'm just borrowing the, the phrase true self. She didn't say that. Uh, yeah. That's my interpreting it. But um, I think it's a constant um, need for vigilance there to, I think, you know, when you are not writing or, or speaking from your true self, but I, um, I'm not sure you know exactly what the signs are yeah. what do you do you have any thoughts about that <laughs> i don't know i mean here you and i are both exploring something we haven't thought about which is the cool part i think of the q a yeah I mean, clearly you've given a lot of thought to what you presented to us and um, but now we're kind of at the margins uh, i i would think certainly a sense of honesty and authenticity is going to come from the true self and and maybe others could begin to add things in the chat. This would be a, this would be a fun thing to think about. So that, those would be the first two I would think about is um, honesty and authenticity. Um, and I've, I've certainly written things where myself wasn't really that involved with it. I think you can do scholarship and not be very vested as a person. Maybe your ego's invested, but that's not your true self as, as I read Merton. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes. Perhaps when you get a little too concerned about how, how is this going to be received and what are people going to think? And then uh, that for me would be some indicators that I've wandered away from <laughs> yeah. my true reason for doing what I'm doing. A, a really different question now. Um, certainly you were talking about the South and it was intriguing to me that the South then became Latin America. That was a nuancing I hadn't expected. Um, but I was thinking, well, the South is a place, and Kentucky's a place that is a part of the South, but you're a daughter of Mississippi, right? Yes. And so Mississippi is surely not the same as Kentucky. And we know Merton was not born, and so he's not a real Southerner in the sense that you are. So I'm interested in whether somebody who's a native of the South basically is going to do 
thinking and writing on the South that those of us, including Merton, never could do it because we weren't born there. He lived there a good while. So I'd love to hear you just think a bit about it a bit. And I've lived in the South once in North Carolina for my undergraduate work, but I, I knew I wasn't a Southerner in the same way as those who were there. So you are. So can you give us a sense of, of the South as place? You talked about Riddle as it is at its heart. Um, so I'm fascinated by that sense of place. Yeah, well, that I mean, that works on many levels. It, it, you know, the the place itself, the 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 sensuous sensual hold that it that can have on you, uh, you know, because it is um, closer to the center. You know, there. there I, I'm not sure. I, I struggle with this, but uh, you know, there is there is a certain hold that that the place it has on on people that used to be listed when I was studying Southern lit and Southern studies, uh, you know, that was one of the items on the list, you know, the, this uh, particular closeness to the, to the land. Um, but I, I'm going back to your original question, is there a difference? There is certainly a difference in the minds of a lot of people who live in the South. I mean, I, I am a daughter of Mississippi. I am the daughter of a daughter and a son of Mississippi. I mean, I have very deep roots. My parents were born and raised here their parents were born and raised in Alabama and, and Georgia. And, uh, you know, I've always been told that that made me, I guess, more Southern than other Southerners. Um, I, it's kind of silly to me. And I don't, I, I've, I've never been what I always disparagingly call a, a professional Southerner. <laughs> but there are plenty of them walking around. I mean, there's, there's something about that Southern identity that people wear with a certain kind of, uh, well, not just pride, but arrogance that it's, 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 a, it's a strange phenomenon to me. Um, so I'm not sure that people who are deeply rooted in the South can write about the South any better than you know, someone else who's perceptive and, and, and sensitive and aware of, of what's going on around them. I sort of resist that that idea, but it's I'm not it's I don't have a clear answer to it, no, I, because it, whole, it's very much a myth of the of the South that that one must be multi generational to really be be able to call themselves themselves Southerners and mm -hmm. no, I don't. <laughs> well, that's fun. I mean, I I think about place. I've never written about it. I remember a wonderful article that Belden Lane once did about the monastery and place and and uh, that whole that whole theme so we're all we're all placed or at least most of us in some some particular place and I like Mary Somerville's comment that Kentucky was a border state not the part of the deep south so uh, kudos to her she's I stand corrected um, you can tell I grew up north of the Ohio River uh, and another different kind of question that uh, you mentioned uh, theopolitical imagination and that Merton had that. Could you say a little more about what this means and then how Merton may have employed a theopolitical imagination? Well, I um, borrowed that term. Uh, I've, I've seen it used um, by others, but I think it applies. You know, that Merton's writing about 
you know, the globe and, and the politics and the, you know, the imperialism and the colonialism and, and all the various um, you know, abuses and, and oppression, forms of oppression that have happened around the world. And his, um, but doing that from a very spiritual place as well. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an exploration of the, of the, the, the geography, but it's also uh, you know, a, a, a spiritual uh, trip around the world in, in that, that particular work. Uh, that is one of, one of the most intriguing pieces of literature to me. I can't, I can't leave it alone. I keep going back to it because there's, there's so much there. Mm -hmm. um, so just looking for a, a, a word to, to encompass the, the largeness of it, that the political imagination seemed, seemed right to me. Could you give us an example of where you see that prominently in play in Merton's writings? Well, certainly you see it in the geography of Lagrare. Okay. Um, and talks about um, colonialism in the, you know, uh, in in the east and and uh, in in Latin America, you know what was done to the the native populations of of uh, South America. Mm -hmm. Another question: you, you used a term that that I've certainly used in in uh, biblical and theological studies. You talked about uh, the the anagogical level of O'Connor's fiction mm -hmm. and. I wonder if you could say a little more about what an anagogical aspect is, and what does it what does it mean? Um, why why did why did you focus on that? That was a that was a word I had yeah. not expected. Uh, O'Connor used that word, and so I, I was, you know, quoting her, and then uh, realizing, you know, that that what what she's what she's getting at when she says that uh, you know her characters are ascending. And as I understand, and I, you know, don't have the theological background that probably qualifies me to talk about this to a great length, but uh, that it's it deals with the you know the elevated spiritual level um, relating to um, the afterlife, and and her characters are are journeying toward you know their redemption. So she's always when she talks about the one common element in her story she says that um, she's got these characters who uh, are uh, moving spiritually you know rising um, and they are helped along often by you know the, the devil becomes an unwitting uh, agent of, of grace that, that um, helps them in that rise yeah well, I'm, I'm going to finish with two easy questions before I send it back to Teresa. Um, one, I, I'm, I'm always intrigued by hearing folks, and you, you, you get this at, at the um, ITMS gatherings in the summers when we get to be together. You hear the question, what's, what's your favorite Merton work and why? And you're asking me. I am asking you, Deborah. It's you and me right now. <laughs> okay, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to stick with the geography of Lograire. All right. It's. I think it. It demands so much, uh, of a reader. There, there's just so much there. Um, but uh, all of his poetry is, 
appeals to me on in some ways. You know, it's very different. He, he did go through some phases, but there's something just really beautiful and captivating about um, all of his poetry. But the the one that keeps calling me to you know read read again and and uh, is is the geography of Laguerre. Great. Well, I love that answer because I can imagine not everybody on the on the Zoom oh. tonight has read it. So some of us are going to go off and read that and become better Merton scholars. So this will be my last question. And uh, if you could join Merton and one writer you referenced tonight in the Hermitage for a while to have be a conversation, who would you take with you to meet with Merton? Who would you like to be with in that trio? I think I'd take Natasha. Natasha. Okay. And why is that? Develop well, a little. I'd like for him to meet her because I think he would really like her. Uh, she's a, a sister of Mississippi, although her experience is quite different from mine. You know, her she comes from a, a mixed marriage, and uh, that you know caused her some grief in her life. And um, but I I think that would that would be my choice. All right. And she's All right, a let's poet. She's a very fine poet. And I think that what Merton values in poetry, I think he would see in her work too. Good. I'd love to go with you. And on that note, I'll send it back to Teresa. To do that. <laughs> well, one of the things I enjoy so much about Tuesdays with Merton is the whole variety of perspectives that are thrown on uh, Merton's life, Merton's works. And uh, Deborah, you did not disappoint. I've I just really appreciated what you had to say about Thomas Merton's appreciation uh, for an affinity with Southerners and Southern writing, uh, Southern writings. So thank you so much for for accepting this challenge to be uh, on Tuesdays with Merton and um, and for the the wonderful insights that you gave us. I also want to thank Father Dan Horan and the Spirituality Center at St. Mary's College for providing the Zoom platform and technical support for Tuesdays with Merton. Uh, thanks to Alan Cope for so uh, insightfully moderating the questions, um, to Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube, and he did send a little message letting you know that this one will be available already uh, tomorrow at some point. He's very prompt with the, uh, with the postings. Mark Mead is also very prompt with making these um, events available as podcasts. All of you, I want to thank for joining us today and for continuing to spread the good word about Tuesdays with Merton. You can find the links to the recordings and that's both the uh, YouTube version and the podcasts. You can find them uh, at mertons.org ITNS. And there you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, we invite you to consider joining. And we also welcome donations to support Tuesdays with Merton. Registration is now open for next month's webinar when Gordon Oyer will speak on Revisioning a Fragmented World, Learnings from Merton's Letters on Social Change. To register, go to merton.org ITNS. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in May. <laughs>